Welcome back to Probably About Politics. This episode, COP. The COP? I feel like it's always like COP whatever number, but not really the COP. COP, COP 26, Glasgow. Yeah. Should we adopt a Scottish accent? I guess we don't do this with any other country we cover, so why would we do it now? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I was supposed to go to Glasgow, man, and then oh, COVID. Me too. This was like, uh, it's been years. Two years ago. Wow. Could have done it. Maybe we will. Maybe it'll happen again. The uh, uh, COP26 in Glasgow was affected by COVID too. Yes. There was a bunch of people who couldn't go. And it was supposed to be last year. And it was supposed... Was there no COP at all last year? No, they canceled it. Mm, they didn't just like teleconference? I imagine that there were things that still happened, but they did not do all the country, all, you know, 200 countries plus uh, NGO, like uh, representatives and, and corporations and stuff. That was sort of it. But, you know, interesting for our future trip to Glasgow is everything I heard was that the city was a wonderful host and that people really enjoyed the city oh really there's yeah. like there's like twenty thousand people that go to this right it's like gigantic yes it's very very big it is i think um like so paris was so cop 21 paris in 2015 was like the first time that that many states had all been together like that like it that this doesn't happen um at this scale really oh like the first time ever yep it was the most ever at that time, I think. And I think it's still more than uh, than Glasgow was because I know that uh, the leaders of China and Russia did not come. And I don't think Brazil either. Oh. Yeah, you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Looking through the list of places where cops previous have been, mm-hmm. um, I see Marrakesh here a couple times. And yep. Marrakesh is just like a cool sounding city like it's yeah. a city that i know nothing about but seems to be like important in the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i guess it's like as an interesting uh, history i guess in it usually rotates but if they don't have a place that wants to host it host it bon always hosts it and i believe fiji hosted it in 2017 or 2018 probably 2018 um and uh and because of that, they partnered with Bonn. And I think Bonn actually physically hosted it, but Fiji were the hosting nation because uh, Fiji oh. was, I don't really know why exactly, but the infrastructure maybe wasn't there for Fiji to host. Right. So yeah, there's a 2017 COP23 CMP13 and CMA1-2 in Bonn. <laughs> and then there's also an SB50 in Bonn in 2019. So it seems like in 2019, there were kind of two. Yeah. Because they knew that 2020 was about to happen and they were going to have to skip that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's more likely because I think even in 2020, this COP was supposed to be the big COP. It was five years after Paris, um, Paris 21. Um, and so the idea being that there were countries were, there was a lot of anxiety, I think, previous two weeks. Countries were supposed to come to this meeting with declarations of how they were going to meet 1.5 and like be prepared um to Mm -hmm. to implement those like as more binding arrangements so this was a big deal so that's probably why there were so many meetings in 2019 that were not official cops so you don't have to have all the nation leaders and everybody there and by 1.5 keep 1.5 as you said you mean 
keep 1.5 alive, which yes. is to maintain uh, a level of warming above pre-industrial levels to mm-hmm. 1.5 degrees Celsius. Yes. And uh, yeah, so that was the, that's a big push from uh, Paris. Paris is really important to this particular cop, but we'll, we can probably um, get into that, I guess, a bit, is uh, Paris was the t- first time that 1.5 was established. There were a lot of okay. developing nations um and and specifically uh the pacific islands who i think uh we know i've talked about before i've I've done research there um they really pushed um for 1.5 they said because 1.5 is the only chance that they have for survival anything higher than that um is they will they won't be able to uh work with that um so they uh in paris they united as a block, a voting block, because this is a setting where so many countries come, um, a lot of countries get to can form sort of alliances of, of willing other willing countries to force issues, um, and and it's a space where smaller countries can sometimes have a bigger say. Um, so s- small island states, particularly in the Pacific, um, but also in the Caribbean, uh, were able to push this through and set 1.5 as the new goal it used to be for for many developed nations uh two point uh, two degrees celsius was the mm-hmm. was the target that was uh wiped out in paris all right we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves we're already in paris but we don't even know what cop one in berlin <laughs> germany in 1995 was about or whatever happened to the kyoto protocol yeah. but before we get there do you think there's going to be a reset of the numbering because eventually once we get to like cop 30 you know, mm-hmm. we're, like right now, we're only five years out of sync with the number. Yeah. So are we going to do like a Windows 10 type thing and just skip like Windows 9 and go from like 8 to 10 just to like kind of like re like realign with this? <laughs> oh, I mean, I would doubt it. And if and look, the bureaucracy of this this conference is so slow that if we spent time trying to figure out how to realign this, I, I'm worried that that would throw off an entire conference. Like next year would just be a wipe, so a wash. So I, I don't really, I don't know if it's worth it to us. <laughs> so, but the issue here, right, is that in 2015 we had Paris, right, which mm-hmm. then started these these succeeding conferences after that of the CMA, the Conference of the Parties to the Paris Agreement. But then in 2016, it was called CMA 1, which is one mm-hmm. year past the first one. So I guess the index year is zero here. Um, <laughs> and then and then in 2017, you get CMA 1-2, then CMA 1-3 in 2018. Mm-hmm. But then in 2019, we skipped to CMA 2, even yeah. though it's now four years past. And then in 2020, we're canceled. But now in 2023, we get the CMA 3. So... <laughs> at some point we just gotta like unify all this stuff right you would think yeah i mean i i think i i think for public understanding we certainly should what we're hitting against here is like is um a very a reasonably public process that is also like insisting on following un bureaucracy um like naming structures that are kind of um hard to understand like what does conference of the parties mean well why is it called cop which COP is an abbreviation for Conference of the Parties. And that's because, mm-hmm. which, uh, spoiler, it's because they're all the nations that signed on to uh, the framework of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in, in the 90s, where where we saw this, the start of these uh, conferences. Um, so, okay. Yeah. 
So let's go back to the beginning here, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. We somehow end up with 197 countries all being part of this thing, which Mm -hmm. is pretty much every country in the world. Yes. Um, And so back in 1995, somehow this has been going on for like 26 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1995, people realize this is an issue. Um, and they think, you know what, let's, this is a big problem. Let's not do anything about it for 26 years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that there will be some, uh, if you look back on it, there, there are things that have happened. I think by and large, yes, for 26 years, not a lot happened. Uh, you'll remember the Kyoto protocol, which largely, uh, we've, we, I think we've maybe mentioned it previously on the, on the podcast, but it, it was sort of the first big agreement to come out of, of of the conference of the parties cop uh and it was in kyoto um and it's basically the first version of like uh, the paris agreement like coming up with a, a, f- a framework and uh, proposed objectives that countries will agree to meet um but it largely failed i think most people would say it largely didn't work out a lot of country most countries didn't meet the objectives or or decided that they were too ambitious yeah so so the Kyoto Protocol happened in 1997, right? So mm-hmm. I guess we're taking, taking that from our starting point. So back in 1995, they start this thing. They're like, okay, this is important. They start this UNCCF, which is the Climate Change Framework Conferences. And then so the COP is the meeting of the people who are in that framework mm-hmm. for the yeah. UN, right? Decision making, yeah. So the first one happens in 1995. And then in 1997, the Kyoto Protocol thing happens, right? So they set out this first framework of rules and goals and uh, targets that people are going to hit. Um, and then, so the first after Kyoto, right? So maybe you can talk a little bit about like what Kyoto Protocol was, but then to like think about like timelines of how long this stuff takes is why is it 26 years later, right? Kyoto happens in 1997 at COP3 and then at COP11 in 20. In 2005, 2005, in 2005, um, in Montreal is the first meeting of the parties of the Kyoto Protocol. Mm -hmm. So there's been cops in between 97 and 2005 every year. But Montreal in 2005 is kind of the the first catch up, kind of like how this is five years past Paris. This was... It, it was just like that. It was, you know, years past Kyoto. Let's take stock, see what, see what everything is. So what are they taking stock of and what was the Kyoto protocol that I think a lot of people our age probably heard about as much as we heard about acid rain and then <laughs> never heard about again once we got out of middle school? Yeah. So it was the Kyoto protocol is essentially um, the first sort of attempt at realizing that we need to set some targets to limit emissions that that there is an issue going on um and it is the issue being climate change and it's the first sort of attempt at addressing sort of um various um environmental measures that would be needed in order to reduce uh reduce uh, emissions but and so what the cop is i guess is or what the conference of parties or cop is is they're a, they're a decision making body and they come together and it's it's a lot of different countries um as well as there's i think um like ngos and and non um civil society actors can can be very involved in the process they don't uh, get to make decisions but they're they're involved in the process um and so what they end up doing is creating legal they can create legal instruments that then all these states agree to adopt and then they have to then take what they've agreed to adopt and they have to implement it and the idea is that every year you're coming back you're sort of 
marking the progress, adjustments that need to be made, promoting like effective implementation, pushing for the implementation of it. Um, so that's what is happening from year to year. So basically you've agreed to a very complex um, and extensive uh, um, framework or, or like set of protocols in the, in, in the Kyoto Protocol, for example. And now you have to go back as a country, try and meet those. And then you come back and you say, this is what I've done to meet them. This is how I've met them. Mm-hmm. And then any, uh, but in the process of making those, like, I think something that maybe if you were paying attention to COP coverage at all, like it's, it become, it can be a process of like wordsmithing. Um, it is a lot of sitting over in very in uh, complicated, sometimes complicated legal documents and saying that you want the word to be um, wind down rather than uh, halt um, because yeah. So, and, and, like, for an example of that, specifically mm-hmm, from COP26, yeah. right, is the difference between phase out. The actual example is to mm-hmm. ask to phase out unabated coal power. And that was changed to, I, I think, largely because of lobbying from India is what I saw. Uh, China and India. Fa- was phase down unabated coal power. <laughs> and then, like, phase out inefficient fossil subsidies. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, some of these, like, specific things, it's like, well, if we consider what we're doing to be efficient or um, so there's another, there's some other wording that's non-essential. for, And so if we consider what we're doing to be essential or if we're phasing it down, depending on what our previous levels were. So it all gets a little bit wishy-washy <laughs> yeah <laughs> but continue yeah so this the but this process of going through these language that's like the the bulk of the work uh, of uh, the cop conference is 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 two weeks long so there's a lot of of leaders coming and speaking and telling you what you're they're doing but the real work is really just hashing out like line by line until everybody agrees to every single word in that document. So you can see how, how it could take a very long time. And then as well, um, why progress on these things can become wishy if a country is successful in getting weaker language in or language that maybe doesn't so forcefully require them to meet. Um, if it's more like if they use language that is more like we're going to try to do this rather than we will do this, um, mm-hmm. each iteration can be sort of a dif- difficulty in, in measuring whether or not we've had success or not um so that's kind of why these it takes a very long time um and it is um a lot of countries um uh, going tit for tat over over very minute details um and that's not really what necessarily makes the headlines um uh but that is sort of the uh sort of maybe more um less uh glamorous part of it all (laughs) so a lot of this a lot of what happens at the cop is that all of this language is agreed upon basically and then mm-hmm. in the end the all the party countries decide whether or not they're actually going to do anything about it so what is the difference then what happened in kyoto and the kyoto protocol that is the reason why it's kind of largely seen as a failure and nothing ever came from it and how is that different from what was agreed upon in paris and specifically how did like the member countries deciding their through their ratifications, right? Like more um, concrete goals, and that was more enforceable, right? Once they mm-hmm. got back home, um, and 
are we now like six years later looking back at Paris as more of a success? Is that kind of how Kyoto was viewed in 2002, 2003? And are we looking back with this at the same way as it was looked back at? Or is that different now? Yeah, I think Kyoto had a few uh, disadvantages that that immediately occurred. Um, Kyoto came into place uh, um, when Amer- the American presidency was very supportive of it. And then um, afterwards, the next president that came in um, immediately said that they would not be trying to meet those objectives, that they were dangerous to uh, American industry and the economy and wouldn't allow them to reach those objectives. Um, so we're talking about I mean, we're talking about the 1990s and early 2000s, right? So if you can imagine where the conversation on climate change was, so it was already an uphill battle, I think, to get countries to weigh um, this situation over uh, the the situation of climate change over the ec- the economy or th- things occurring in globally. For example, 9/11 would have happened after that, and, um, and and so a lot of things got thrown out the out the window in terms of. Um, countries being willing to meet those objectives. Um, there is always the problem of political will. Like if, if, if one country, so when the U S is there, um, and, and at the table and willing to participate, um, you have had success. That's why Paris was successful, um, in a lot, in a lot of regards. And then if the, but if the U S changes the presidency, like Trump pulled out of Paris, um, and Biden has put them back in similarly with Kyoto Bush, George W. Bush pulled them out of Kyoto and never, they never went back in. Um, so that's a lot of it. It it still requires the countries to agree to, uh, to, to be parties to it. We're also, and, and engaging with, um, with climate change is a real threat. Um, and then also the fact that we're much further along the lines on questions of renewables and, uh, technology that can support the real, the realistic achievement of this, the idea that this is inevitable and it has to happen all influence that, I think, um, for sure. Uh, but yeah, at the time it was, it was quite, it was, uh, it, it is about the political moment that it comes into. And I think Paris is in a, the difference between Paris and Glasgow is also a difference of the political moment it came into there. Uh, the willingness in Paris to, uh, get behind this as an exciting opportunity was much more there than it is. Uh, it, it, and I think they hit a lot of roadblocks at COP26 um, with less willingness to uh, to participate in this and and make those big commitments again. And some things about the Paris Agreement too that are different than the Kyoto Accord was the difference between the develop and developed and developing yeah. nations was more strict in the Kyoto Protocol, mm-hmm. whereas in Paris it was a little bit more um, target set kind of for everybody, and yeah. also the legally binding nature of the Paris Agreement post ratification. So yeah what it was the legal i mean i know that we're talking about cop 26 today but cop 26 is really and going forward talks a lot about these um things that came out of paris so i think understanding paris is important to see why going forward these things might actually mean something so what is this legally binding nature of this because i think we talk about the united nations on this show pretty frequently and often it's kind of seen as the United Nations can make um, suggestions. They can um, provide guidelines for things, but nothing ever really like they. They are not a judicial body, right? They mm-hmm. don't make laws. They're not. They're not an international government. So, 
what part of the Paris Agreement allows it to be legally binding <laughs> and who enforces those laws and why why is that kind of like a success of the Paris Agreement? Um, so I guess, yeah, so it's not something I really you did touch on I, that I think is is crucial is the um, the recognition the recognition of the the gap between developed and developing countries and making up mm-hmm. um, and, and incorporating questions of adaptation. Um, and supporting adaptation to climate change and supporting the transition um, that didn't exist so that really ev- elevates and that's a crucial point that elevates the willingness of a number of countries to participate once there is a realization that um, there needs to be funds which was a big part of uh, Glasgow that we'll talk about uh, funds that support the the gap um, between developed and developing nations um, but yes at the Paris COP um, what they were able to get was this that each country they were able to get an agreement that country or make an agreement for country that countries would sign on to that they will make um what is termed uh nationally determined contributions what what is key is they were able to do that by making it nationally determined contributions so nobody else no other country gets an input on what they are going to contribute but it means that they set the contributions and then every year they have Paris brought in, uh, also built in a, a ratcheting process. So the idea is the contribution that you can make now will then allow you to make a greater contribution the next year and the next year, so on and so forth. And then so the target of each COP uh, requires that countries then ratchet up as they go. Um, so they were able to get an agreement to sign on to that, to create the framework. Um, so the idea here is that we're creating um, a legal, like what we're talking about, legally binding framework. What, that was the, always the purpose of COP is that the signatory countries would create a, a, um, create tools and structures that would allow them to achieve the objectives they need to relate it to climate change um, together. And so this is just sort of the finally Paris in Paris they were able to get enough countries there, enough support there. Um, in order to get that across the line and finally sort of do that. Um, and so now we have these NDCs, um, and in theory, um, countries, there, there is, oh, there is a risk and then it is a reality that, you know, some of these nationally determined contributions aren't always very clearly defined or maybe, um, and they certainly, if you add them all up, they're not adding up to 1.5 degrees Celsius at the moment. Um, but the idea is, if they're making them, they make an uh, one that is slightly under ambitious. They have to make it more ambitious next year. So in theory, we're getting closer year on year on year. And what? So basically, when I look at a list of how well countries are doing at the Paris mm-hmm. Agreement um, targets, it seems like everybody's failing them, right? Yes. Like nobody is nobody is close. So like other than other than the obvious outcome of the punishment for not doing it is climate change. Yeah. <laughs> what, like what other instruments are in place to enforce it? So like, from what I understand, it's, it, it's really not a treaty. It's an agreement between countries. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of enforced among themselves. And that's basically it, right? Yes. Yeah. It is basically forced among themselves. I think that there is, there are I I acknowledge I would acknowledge there's certainly limitations to that, um, but the, it is very real in it in that if everybody is doing it and and if uh, your trading partners, um, countries that you see as your equals are all doing it, 
you as a country are probably more likely to do it. Um, and, and, and that like countries like, so something that happened was the U S and China at, at COP 26 at Glasgow have agreed to uh, work together on, um, on setting targets to reduce emissions. Um, and so those are two world powers that have then made some sort of partnership, um, in theory that will, um, pressure the other as their competitors, um, to each other to reach stronger goals, make stronger goals, whether or not that plays out, who knows, but these sorts of alliances and, um, groupings of, of countries of, uh, parties of the willing is, is sort of the UN term for it, um, to meet, uh, ambitious objectives and then keep each other online or in target for them. It's, it's kind of embarrassing. It can be very embarrassing for leaders to, to not hit, um, it was certainly a topic of uh, the recent Canadian election that came up a few times, whether or not Trudeau was meeting those objectives or whether he was going to be ambitious enough to 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 continue to pursue to meet those ambitions. Um, so I, I guess, yeah, I take your, I, I, I think I, I take anybody who uh, who thinks that it's maybe not very effective because there is no real like, uh, you know, you have to pay a very heavy fine or go to jail or something, uh, enforcement mechanism, but that is very difficult in a international setting. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want this to come across like you're saying, this is me. You're, you're taking oh, my no. criticism of this. <laughs> I'm just asking the question. Well, what no. happens? Like <laughs> they, these people set these things, right. And you want to know, I guess in, uh, when it comes down to anything, it's just people saying what they're going to do and yeah. you need to, you know, hope that each other actually does those things. So, We've gotten to Paris, I guess, right? There's all these different um, targets that come out. There's this 1.5 degrees Celsius thing. Um, there's different levels of two degrees. There that was originally was pushed for two degrees, and then these other nations pushed for 1.5. Now at COP26, we're seeing all this stuff that says keep 1.5 or a lot alive, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like <laughs> the chances of this happening and stuff. Yeah. Um. So. What is it about COP26? Is it just because it's like five years on from Paris and this was the the predetermined checkpoint and there was this other predetermined checkpoint at 2030 for revising goals and stuff, which I see has now been moved forward to just every year revising goals and seeing what's going on. Mm -hmm. So is that why COP26 was so important? Yeah, I mean, yes, Uh, it it was sort of seen, seen as five years from Paris would be the time to see if the this sort of legal structure that Paris had tried to set up would succeed, and then uh, countries were taking on and implementing, giving it time to get started. In theory, once you have, you know, if you give somebody five years to put in a plan into place, and then you can sort of year after year kind of ratchet, the ratchet principle goes better, um, sort of giving a, a runway to get started, I think. Um, and then as you can see, there were all those meetings that were kind of happening um, in, in those between years um, that you mentioned. Um, and I think it's that can the what you mentioned about how they've now agreed to come in every year um, to to consider to uh, do these check ins and, and this ratcheting process. Um, I think that is seen as a, a good development, a, a promising development that in a lot of ways we've established that there is this legal there is this legal structure that we'll be working under. Um, and from now on, it has to be making real uh, every year, making real contributions to improving um, and, and, and going forward, getting closer to that 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius goal. Um, so it's definitely um, 
I think whether or not it, uh, COP26 it was, it's sort of, they build it as being, yeah, keeping 1.5 alive, um, being the crucial conference in order to save the world from climate change. Um, whether or not it met that level of goal is, is very debatable and whether or not that was realistic at any point, I think is also debatable. Um, but it, yeah, it, it did what it did, I guess, which we can mm-hmm. get into a bit, I guess. <laughs> so is COP26, right? It's kind of this check-in point and there's been these outcomes, like these, these tweets from like the COP26 Twitter, right? They say, okay, Glasgow has kept the 1.5 alive. So I don't know, you're saying it's up in the air, but they're saying, hey, we can still do this thing. <laughs> um, uh, and they're kind of like, they're, they're, there's these like kind of four outcomes or goals or whatever that have been established, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yes. There are some, some big four takeaways that came out of it, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you want to go, do you want to run through what these proposed takeaways are (laughs) yeah for sure um yeah so there's a few um you can kind of you can i'll we'll link in in the newsletter there's a good chart that sort of shows whether or not your country has has gotten on board with this because not necessarily (laughs) every country signed on to each of these pledges um but um one of the big ones um methane which is, is is definitely one of the worst um um emissions that we for for the for climate change, I guess, um, a hundred over a hundred countries um, signed on to sort of a, as I said, coalition of the willing um, to a pledge to reduce uh, methane emissions by thirty percent. I believe by twenty fifty, maybe I can't remember what year that year target they set, but they did. They all so over a hundred nations, notably and importantly, um, Australia. And China didn't sign on. Australia is probably one of the major um, sort of uh, bad actors in this. They did not sign on to very many things. Um, and I think they brought an oil and gas uh, corporation as one of their like observer um, uh, people that was at the at the conference. Um, anyway, but that's... <laughs> that's not super important, I guess. Um, and the uh, another one, it, another uh, thing that also happened is... Um, about $10.5 billion was committed to helping nations transition to renewables, um, as I think we mentioned earlier. So this is seen as, as being um, sort of a crucial component of what I was talking about earlier, where you have um, developing nations um, and a, a real divide between developing and developed nations in terms of the, the ability to um, achieve sort of the uh, transition to renewables while also achieving the advancement of of their countries. I think we can really see that in um, China and India's sort of sticking point over whether or not they had to uh, phase out or phase down coal, which was one of the sort of the point that kept caught going late into the night and and actually into a day longer than it was supposed to go. Um, because they, it, it for, uh, I think that India got really pushed to the forefront on this, but China was a, a significant um, had significant concerns over the term uh, phase out as well, um, but it it uh, raises like there's I think the question of having to phase out coal raises important questions about climate justice for these mm-hmm. developing countries. Um, so basically, uh, how India 
is making big strides, but it currently relies about 70% on coal for its energy and has no really easy pathway to actually achieving that phase out while maintaining um, access to power for its country, which already has, you know, many uh, areas that have uh, interrupted electricity access. Um, and so forcing them to uh, adopt languages like phase out um, and, and then looking at them as the bad guy when they don't want to push to that um, is a really is a challenging question for getting all countries on board. Um, and so funds like this uh, transition to renewable energies uh, for developing in countries is really important because there are a lot of countries who, you know, they're going to e- they're not going to be willing to do it if it means giving up the health and happiness and success and progress of their their people and their country. Um, I think by uh, some measure, $10.5 billion probably isn't enough. Um, It also, importantly, um, did not include, um, I think a lot of developed nations um, decided that they they did not want to include losses and loss and damage funding financing, um, which is something that um, a lot of the small island states now are, are pushing for, um, as well as um, most of the G, uh, G77, which is basically everybody who's not in the, <laughs> who's not in the other uh, G groups. Uh, uh, so about 100, I think 130 nations um, are all pushing for loss and damage funding. But I don't think, I think the US, I don't think Canada really wanted it. I don't think the US wanted it. Um, and the UK or the European Union, um, because what it means is that basically funding for um, uh, funding for countries that are already experiencing impacts uh, impacts and then going to be first forced into a further hole that they have to kind of dig themselves out of um, is is going to be essential because there are already countries who are going to experience this no matter what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of developed countries don't want to take on um, blame uh, in in such official terms. So the that's a that was a big sticking point. So they're happy about the the ad- the renewable energies adaptation funding, um, but it is notable that it is in replacement of any sort of loss and damage language that mm-hmm. uh, is sort of seen as essential for moving forward. Mm-hmm. And just to touch on, like, you started with talking about um, methane reduction and, like, the global methane pledge um, mm-hmm. versus, like, the reduction in coal use. Um, and, like, specifically just to give an example of, like, wording around it and, like, what mm-hmm. the actual targets are. For methane, it seems like less of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um And there's like these specific targets and goals, which is that it aims to reduce global methane emissions by at least 30% from 2020 by 2030. Like those are specific Mm -hmm. goals, terms, language. Um, And I mean, China, Russia, India, like the largest emitters didn't sign on, but there's specific goals in place, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas for reduction in coal consumption, it's just reduction in coal consumption right Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah so there's like it's and i i guess the 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 indc's come out and they they each country sets their own thing Mm -hmm. right and then they come forward and say and it's just basically so you set your own thing and then it's basically whether or not that's in line with the overall goal of 1.5 percent or 1.5 degrees Mm -hmm. um so you can do that through 
meeting these specifically or by doing a lot of methane and no coal or doing, you know, a ton of coal, well, hopefully more than one ton of coal <laughs> um, <laughs> reduction uh, and, you know, less methane or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And, and I think something as well to, to point out with the coal, like, and I think that this is important because I think um, India, again, got quite a, a, maybe a bad rap out of, out of uh, COP26 and, and to a certain extent, rightfully, but also it's worth note mentioning like coal is, um, something that um, uh, Western countries, developed countries have been really willing to do because they have other sources of fuel access um, that uh, and that have not been targeted um, by such aggressive like reductions. Um, so natural gas is is very available in the US, um, but that is not really the target of any of these uh, major pledges um, in, in the same way. Um, so mm-hmm. it's it's worth noting that, <laughs> That coal uh, is actually not a significant. It's it's all it's a pretty achievable goal for many countries around the world right now to eliminate coal um, from uh, and 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 reach those uh, objectives uh, by and large. I think so. It, it is worth sort of thinking, I guess, from the perspective like whose perspective are some of these goals set um and and who is it maybe benefiting and that's that's something that comes into conversation when we're working on um such an international scene mm-hmm. um the sort of the last big pledge maybe we can talk about and one that i think also sort of highlights this sort of again uh, um is the end of deforestation by 2030 mm-hmm. um which is an ambitious goal and it'll be uh, i think it is definitely very valuable but it is Sort of worth noting that it, it's made achievable because I think they're they're also allowed. My understanding is that they're allowed. It's just not renewable forest. So if they replant that forest, that is considered um, uh, contributing to the end of deforestation by twenty thirty. But like for example, in Canada, a lot of that replanting is young saplings of all the same like species and age in mm-hmm. what could have been a very complex and biodiverse forest previously. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely worth digging into some of these um, objectives, I guess. Just to touch on something you, you just were talking about with India, um, is kind of like the the total CO2 emissions per country and also like the per capita CO2 emissions per country. So like mm-hmm. just by total fuel CO2 emissions, um, India is like, pretty bad yes (laughs) right like they have a lot um but per capita they're like lower than the rest of the world right yeah like the the global average they're actually below average per capita so it's like the the way that these targets are set too it's like it's very difficult whether or not like what language you use whether it's Mm -hmm. total emissions or per capita emissions i mean if you reduce per capita emissions then you'll also reduce total probably right Um, yeah but but uh, but depending on who bears the burden, um, it changes quite a bit, right? Yes. And um, I mean, this is what this is what Kyoto kind of did, right? Was like say, okay, developing nations don't have to do this. Developed nations do, and this is kind of what Paris has changed, right? Is that yeah? Everybody has to do something, even even develop even developing nations. Um, but yeah, the deforestation, um, Brazil and Russia both signed on to that too. Mm-hmm. So that is a huge proportion of the global. Uh, forest cover <laughs> is yes. those two countries um so uh that seems i mean it's it seems like i mean deforestation on 
the scale of like the other things that are happening like reduction in coal i guess like end deforestation completely but like potentially reduce coal in some ways is like kind of strange the things that they decide to focus on and um out of these four things that you mentioned um really specifically something that sticks out to me just on first glance is that Mm. there's like no talk of the ocean yes right um (laughs) where like most of the biomass of the world is in the ocean right mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh like a lot of the time for these global temperatures and everything people use like mean ocean temperature because mm-hmm. like it is the sink of carbon dioxide it is the sink of temperature yeah. it is the sink of biomass that turns carbon dioxide into oxygen like you know plankton do more than trees uh, yes yeah but it's 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 so weird that the ocean is not thought about in these things like when people think about this i think top of mind is like humans on earth burning fuel and planting trees like even the even cop 26 is specifically planting trees to offset the um amount of co2 emissions that are produced by getting to cop and Mm -hmm. and having cop equal to like seven thousand average homes for a year right so to offset that they're planting trees but no <laughs> nothing about the no ocean discuss, no discussion of the ocean and like the ocean like specifically in this thing right it's like okay russian and brazil make up 30 percent of forests on earth and everything but it's like yeah. okay that's like 30 percent of you know 30 percent of the earth cover is you know a small number compared to the ocean yeah <laughs> i just like I don't know. Maybe specifically in the in the realm of like climate change and setting these targets, none of the countries are in the ocean, right? I mean, some of them are pretty well, yeah. close to the ocean <laughs> and will soon be uh, inside of the ocean. Um, but I guess like the ocean is kind of outside the jurisdiction of these countries, so it's difficult to regulate in these ways. Um, but it seems like a huge oversight and something that just can't be regulated in the same way. And like, there's no way to like like talk about reforestation and planting more trees but there's nothing about um like overfishing or mm-hmm. um like plastic waste in the oceans it I don't, yeah i'm not 100 i don't know i i don't i think um i think i no, i think you're tapping onto something that's really important i think that a lot of um people in the in the environmental movement particularly um marine areas of the environmental movement would point out that like i think that the 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 recently the us uh in the i think elizabeth warren or something when she was running as the presidential to be the democratic presidential candidate um agreed to produce a blue or to agreed to sign on to a blue new deal which was supposed to be uh, an uh, an ocean and water centric um, uh, counterpart to the Green New Deal. Um, but it is, it's really underserved. And I think that is more to do with attention and awareness, uh, than actual ability to regulate that. Um, I think, uh, like, there's certainly a lot of work that the, the Canadian government, for example, does. We have huge coastlines on, um, and, and that are, Sort of, and I think that the liberals and have previously introduced great, significantly expanded protected areas, um, mm-hmm. even in the ocean. But that is like, I think it's more that it's just not um, where people are paying attention, and so it's not the easy get or what people are just um, lining up to make big commitments on. So, you know, COP twenty six ended what a couple days ago now. Um, by the time this episode is out, for sure. Uh, 
what's kind of the general consensus coming out of this? Is this, I mean, it's, it's, it's too early to say whether or not this is a success or not. I mean, right off the bat, you see a bunch of activists saying this is not enough. It's never mm-hmm. enough. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, what is, what, like, it, does it seem like reasonable to a reasonable person? Not to say that activists aren't reasonable, but obviously they're going to say it's not enough. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, so it's complicated. It, I think that, um, so uh, Greta Thunberg was sort of quoted as saying it's a lot of blah, blah, blah. And I think in the conversation we've had here today, it really points out that this is the space where it's just hashing things. It's a lot of talking um, and going over minute details and it serves a specific role. And it is, but it wasn't like, I think that the building it up in such a way where it was the last great chance really made it seem like all the hope was in there. And, and I don't think it ever was. There's so much happening outside of it that has to continue to happen. Um, uh, uh, and like, you know, the role activists play the role, corporations and uh, businesses play the role countries and governments will play. It also exists outside of this and, and is important. Um, and it's not the last great hope for, for us to, to, to get to 1.5 and, and, you know, uh, survive the threat that climate change represents to all of humanity. Um, so in, in that bigger scale, I don't think it was ever that much uh, that was that was where this was at stake. Um, on a smaller scale, I think that there were real losses and <laughs> real wins and losses. Uh, I think that the fact that they're coming back year over year is a, is a good thing. Um, and, and there seems to be some willingness. But my big concern, I guess, from my perspective as a, as a researcher who's really interested in, in sort of climate change and questions of adaptation and resilience is that it is right now it's very much a, a question of developed nations versus developing nations um, and developed nations dictating a lot of a lot of how things are going to play out um, and that will be a big problem for um, for countries trying to adapt and um, thrive in the face of climate change around the world that's a lot of the world's population that is not being um, being best served maybe by cop at the moment in a forum that is supposed to help serve them. The idea that this many countries got together was supposed to be better for developing nations. Okay, well, that's COP26. Yeah. Join us back here for COP27 coverage. Yeah. Uh, Maybe we can make this a yearly thing. Um, We can reduce our podcast (laughs) output even less to just be once a year covering (laughs) COP. No good news this week. No space news or Gutierrez news. Um, Yeah, I guess there's lots of very good. There are other good sources and podcasts that I think cover day to day at COP. And maybe we'll link those in the newsletter if you're looking for some more of that. Um, But yeah, I think that this is important stuff to pay attention to. Okay. And with that, keep paying attention to COP and also to probably about politics yes uh if you want to pay attention to cop and probably politics uh send us an email at probablypolitics at gmail.com or send us a message on twitter at probpolitics um join the newsletter and get updates on uh this and all other things that we talk about on the show little articles that kaylee and i find interesting uh and that give you more background information about what we what we talk about here like what the difference between the cop the cmp <laughs> and the the cma are 
uh, and the difference between an INDC and an NDC. Um, but with that, thank you for listening to Probably Politics. Uh, we love you. We love you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>